Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Lively. My name is Will Vakurvich. I am uh, on staff here at Redemption Tempe. I'm director of Mission Collectives and Communities. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers will make sure to get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, then consider this our gift to you. We want everyone to have a, a copy of God's Word. Uh, if you do have a Bible, then there's racks in the back. You can drop them off when you're finished. So you guys heard the passage. This is an interesting day to preach, feeling a little anxious about preaching a passage where God commands us not to be anxious. <laughs> So will you guys pray with me this morning as we get started? <clears throat> God, thank you for today. And thank you that you are our Father, that you're good, you're in control, that you love us. God, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his words to us. God, I pray that you would speak clearly through me, that we would hear from you today the things that uh, your Spirit will move in us. I pray that you would use this time so that we would love you more so that we would love our neighbors and our communities more. We pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. So this is a really um, unique and interesting passage for me to preach today. Uh, and I'm going to start off, I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable with you guys and, and share a little bit about my history. Um, grew up in Northern California. Uh, my, my fiance at the time, now wife, and I moved here a little over seven and a half years ago. And after being here for a few months, we had basically every sphere of our lives that you can imagine changed. We moved out of state, we moved away from friends and family, we changed jobs, uh, we were planning a wedding, uh, we had some, some turmoil within, our, within my family. There was a ton of stuff going on. And one day, out of the blue, uh, I had what I would later learn would be an anxiety attack. Never had one before. I was in my um, mid-ish 20s, and uh, it was weird and really scary, and I was pretty sure I was going to die, but I didn't, thankfully, obviously, and, uh, and that sparked uh, about a week and a half span of these really intense um, anxiety attacks, one after another after another. I wasn't able to sleep well. Uh, I actually ended up being hospitalized and, and learned that for that time, I, I was struggling with anxiety disorder. Um, it had never happened before. I had no idea what to do with it. My frame of reference was like, I guess there's some kind of sin. Something's wrong. I'm just going to be like a crazy person for the rest of my life. I didn't know what was going on. And I had a lot of great friends and family that, that came around. And some of, some of them loved us very well through this, uh, through my time in the hospital and then after. And then others really meant to love us well. But it turns out, believe it or not, if you're in the middle of an anxiety attack and somebody says, well, Jesus says, don't be anxious, it's not really helpful. And so, so looking at this passage and, and having this experience with it, um, I, I, I realized that for us as 21st century North Americans, we hear certain words in certain ways. So right off the bat, I want to let you know that this passage is not talking about an anxiety disorder. 
It's not what Jesus is referring to, right? That's like a pretty modern deal. His hearers would not have thought like, oh, Jesus is referring to some kind of medical issue. Because it would be hard for us to make sense of that. If Jesus was saying, don't have anxiety disorder, it would be the same as Jesus saying, like, don't have a broken arm. Like, okay, how do I do that, Jesus? So, if that's not what Jesus is saying, then we need to unpack what, what is Jesus saying in this passage. And to do that, we, we know we can't just pluck out one verse and assume that we know the entire meaning. We need to look at this sermon as a whole. And this is, I don't know about you guys, I have loved this sermon series. Ricardo and, and Ken and some of the people that have spoken have done such a beautiful job showing us what Jesus is doing over the course of this sermon, right? He starts with the Beatitudes, telling us, look, this is what God's kingdom is like. We know what it's like because the people that are in the kingdom look this way. They, they live differently as, as salt and light so that the people around them will see the Father. Jesus uses this word Father at least 15 times throughout the sermon, and for us who've spent any time around the church, God's the Father. It's no big deal. But for Jesus' original audience, this was revolutionary. You don't call God Father. God's our judge. God's our Lord. He's our protector. Like the nicest side of the spectrum, maybe he's our provider, but father. There's intimacy there. Jesus paints this picture of, of a father who more than um, outward actions desires our heart. He tells the people, you've heard that it, said, uh, that it was said, do not murder. I tell you, do not even be angry because the father wants our heart to care about the things that his heart cares about. He's shaping a people for himself. And last week, Ricardo spoke about how God desires us to um, glorify him with our resources, financial resources, material resources, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but rather, I tell you, lay up treasures in heaven. You cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve both God and money. And this is where we pick up today, and our passage starts in, in chapter 6, verse uh, 25, with, therefore. So as Ricardo has made famous, whenever we see a therefore, we have to ask what the therefore is. Ah, you guys have learned well. What the therefore is therefore. Well, it's connecting this thought. It's connecting this thought that God desires all of our being. Around here we say all of life is all for Jesus. That doesn't just mean Sunday mornings. It means our entire week. It means our jobs, our neighborhoods, our money. As unpopular as it is to talk about money in church, God desires that too. Our thoughts, our affections, everything. So therefore, because God is a good father, because he loves us, Jesus begins to address our priorities, our preoccupation with things, the things that cause us worry and anxiety, not in a clinical sense, but in a sense of, what am I going to do about this? Because that's the wrong question. Our Father's good, and He loves us. He's going to take care of it, and Jesus is going to show us why we should think that and how. So, 
He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I love this next part because it's like you can almost, Jesus is, is seeing the people in the audience and he can see their wheels turning, right? Okay, God, I got to store up treasures in heaven. Somebody's got to pay the bills around here though, right? I got to eat. I got kids. I got diapers to buy. I understand. The struggle is real. And Jesus is just looking around and he says, yeah, God knows you got to eat. He knows it's not good for us to run around naked. He provided clothes for us as we left the garden, and he still provides for us. As a matter of fact, you can see Jesus saying, like, look, guys, look, uh, that bird. See that bird? You see this bird here? Just look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Do you remember all the way back at the beginning of the story as God is creating everything, God is speaking everything into existence, and he's making the planet and, and um, the, the grass and the plants and all of these things, and then he makes animals, and, he, and after each one he says, that's good, right? Birds are good. Chicken is delicious. We appreciate birds. And then he creates man and woman, and he says, it's very good. Are you not of more value than they? He goes on, okay, so you guys saw the bird. Look, look over here. There's flowers. Why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which, is today, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so we see Jesus giving them another example, right? Jesus is basically saying, think of the richest person in your context. And for the original Jewish audience, it would have been King Solomon. He was the wealthiest, he was the wisest, he made gardens, he did all of this wonderful stuff. He was the best dressed. So if you can remember back to high school, whoever won best dressed. Or think about pop culture, whoever that is for you, I'm not going to venture a guess because then you'll realize how old I am. But whoever that person is that's the best dressed, the wealthiest, the one that you look at and say, they really have it together, Jesus is saying, yeah. And they're really worried about it. But when you look at these flowers, they just hang out. What do flowers do other than, I don't know, photosynthesis? They grow, and God creates them beautifully. And they're here today and gone tomorrow. Are you not of more value than a flower? So Jesus is challenging their priorities. He's not saying food is unimportant. He's not saying clothing is unimportant. Or that we should just give all of, all of our stuff away and, and wander around homeless. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying, what are you overly preoccupied with and why. Fifteen times throughout this sermon, Jesus references the Father. And he continually says things like, the Father sees, the Father knows. The Father sees what is done in, in secret. The Father knows what you need. And so as we approach this, in, in my past, I've approached this passage as just like me, 
and God. Doesn't really mean anything to anyone else, just me. And the image that I have is this image of God, like, don't you be worried, don't you be anxious. Which I don't know about you, but that's not really a comforting, like anxiety-reducing image. That's a lot to shoulder. God says, I better not mess it up. How we view or imagine God greatly affects how we read this passage. Before we moved to Arizona, um, I, I, was a, I, I worked at a high school, a private Christian high school in Northern California, and one of the classes I got to teach was in a mission elective. Um, and so we would go take a mission trip and, and talk about mission, and, and it was really cool. And one of the activities we would do uh, is I would have students describe how they imagined God. And we would get a whole array of answers, some pretty typical things. You know, God's like Santa Claus, gives me what I want most of the time. Sometimes he kind of gets it wrong, but it's still a decent enough gift. Um, you know, we get some that were kind of sad, like God is an angry uh, high school principal. These are high school kids. And God has his clipboard and his check marks every time I make a mistake. Or God's like, you know, the coach that just blows the whistle so everyone looks at me when I make a mistake. One girl says something along the lines of, um, I imagine God like my dad. He's always really busy doing important business and never has time for me. And it was heartbreaking, right? Oh, you guys feel it too. And it, right in the middle of this like heavy moment where this girl has just bared her soul to high school class, which takes a lot of courage, this 14-year-old sophomore named Spencer raises his hand and he says, hey, Mr. V, I know what God's like. God's like Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Some of you guys remember the crocodile hunter. Okay, so if you don't, the crocodile hunter was this guy on Animal Planet. He was an Australian guy that wore like the khaki safari suit and he said crikey all the time, right? And he would run around the jungle and, like, pick up snakes that would try to bite him. And it was kind of this, like, silly show. And, and so I was a little bit frustrated. And, and I said, Spencer, man, she just shared this really personal, deep story. What do you mean God's like the crocodile hunter, dude? Like, come on. Be respectful. And he was like, no, Mr. V, I really mean it. I really think God's like the crocodile hunter. And so now I'm debating, like, do I kick this kid out of my class? Like, what's he pull, trying to pull here? He's trying to be the funny guy. And so I said, okay, please explain. So he said, God is like the crocodile hunter because um, Steve Irwin loves animals. And his whole life, he's devoted to animals. And he's trying to teach people about the best ways to keep animals safe. And he's built these huge zoos and wildlife preserves where these animals can, like, live and not be bothered. And even the dangerous animals, he, like, goes right on top of them and, and grabs them and he's with them so that they can be safe. And he actually even died being close to a dangerous animal. And my mind was blown. This 14-year-old knows what he's talking about. That's a beautiful image of God. That image of God shapes the way we read this passage. And it moves us from the, the finger-wagging you know, God who's telling us, don't you ever worry about anything, to a loving Father, one that we can trust, even in the midst of hard times, in the midst of anxiety, 
In the midst of worry, let's be honest. If you are alive and thinking in 2016, there are things we should be worried about. What about terrorism? What about the Zika virus? What if the wrong person gets elected? What if, fill in the blank, we feel the weight of it? It's on our news feeds, it's on our TVs, it's in our conversations with people. There are heavy times. So what is Jesus calling us to? Is he calling us to some Pollyanna, shove our fingers in our ears, la la la, everything's great? Just bury our heads in the sand and pretend like we're going to be out of here one day, so let it burn. I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us to. See, he instructs us, instructs us not to worry, not to be overly preoccupied with these things that God takes care of. He gives us the example of the bird. He gives us the example of the flowers. And then he makes a comparison. If you guys will look down in verse 33. But, so there's this comparison, instead of worrying about all of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. I like where Jesus is going here. Because he's, he's calling to mind, in a sense, this image of family. If we seek first his kingdom... I am not the whole sum of his kingdom. Yes, God is concerned with each of us individually and with all of us corporately. And so he gives us this phrase, seek first the kingdom. Seek first his righteousness, which Ken Weitzman reminded us could also be translated justice. What is right and good according to God's character. There's echoes here. A, a couple paragraphs prior to this, Jesus is instructing us how to pray, and he talks about this kingdom. He says this, Your kingdom come, seek first his kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very next line, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus doesn't instruct us today to pray, give me today my daily bread. Give my family today our daily bread but give us today our daily bread. Jesus is refocusing our preoccupation with the things that might happen to us, to all of us communally. There's a sense that we're connected. And this isn't a brand new idea for Jesus. This is something that Israel has been thinking about historically. Uh, this theme is picked up in the, in the book of Jeremiah, and so... Let's, let's tell the story a little bit. God creates everything good. The fall happens. Sin enters into the world. The good world that God has created is, is now experiencing brokenness. And in the midst of that brokenness, God is still desiring relationship with his people. So initially he picks one person, Abraham, and tells him, through your family, I will bless you so that all families on earth will be blessed. And God throughout the Bible, if you guys are reading along in the True Story Project, you're, you're reading some of this story, has called his people to live in a very distinct way so that other people would be blessed. 
God takes this seriously. We've been reading through the law, and I don't know about you guys, but some of the laws don't make a lot of sense to me in the 21st century, but I know one thing about all of these laws. God takes them seriously. And he takes them seriously because they're serious business at hand. God's helping to shape a people to live distinctly in the midst of the brokenness of the world so that all nations, all families may be blessed by entering into a relationship with him. The law matters because the way that Israel, God's people, behaved in their communities, the way they loved outsiders and loved each other, would display to all the nations how loving God is. What a loving father we have in God. And so, that's what the nation was called to. And God would send his prophets to remind his people, act like your dad. Don't act like the nations around you. Live differently. And sometimes they would get it right, but most of the time they would get it wrong. And God would send warning after warning after warning because this was serious business. God was putting his people on display so that the nations could see the goodness of his love. To the point where after generations of disobedience, God raised up the Babylonian army to take his people into captivity. Their nation was desolated. Think of the images you've seen of Syria over the last few months. Everything's destroyed. People are murdered. People are taken into slavery. I imagine there would be some worry and anxiety in the midst of that. And so God's people in Babylon are crying out to him, and these false prophets are saying, don't worry about it, everything's going to be fine. We'll be out of here in no time. But God's prophet Jeremiah says, actually, that's not the truth. The truth is you're going to be here for a while. So build a house. Plant a garden. Get married. Have children. Make sure your children get married. And in the midst of all of this, he tells us in Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Give us today our daily bread. God is continuing to clarify for his people his character doesn't allow us to be self-focused. If we're really going to enter into this family, Jesus is helping us understand what the family culture is like. So when my wife and I had been dating for a while, uh, we made the long trip from Northern California down to Southern California to meet the parents, right? And, and I'm driving, and, you know, it's like the young puppy love, and everything's great, and we're driving, and she's like, hey, um, just so you know, my... Uh, my dad's really nice, but he can, he can be a little intense. And I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, all right, yeah, excited to meet him. She's like, yeah, he was, um, <clears throat> he was in the military? Oh, cool, cool, thankful for his service, appreciate it, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And she's like, he was a Marine. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, they, they make the, I don't know, the, the ooh-ah, they do that thing, okay, cool, I won't do that, I'll, I'll be embarrassed. And she's like, yeah, he was in uh, Vietnam, I don't think you're hearing me. He can be kind of intense. And then, you know, my slow brain is like, oh, oh, okay. So she gave me a little glimpse of family culture. Get to know her dad before he warms up. Uh, this, is, this is how he greeted me. He shook my hand, didn't say a word, 
I sat down on the couch. He sat down on a chair facing the side of my face <laughs> and just stared at me the whole conversation. Her mom was talking, and I'm like, yeah, my name's Will. Nice to meet you. Freaked out. But Aaron did a good job. She let me know what her dad was like. Now we have a great relationship. We talk. Uh, he responds now, so that's, that's really helpful. <laughs> He's a great guy. Um, I should have picked up on that hint and kind of shared with her a little bit of, like, my family culture, but I didn't. And so uh, our first Christmas together, she, she learned the one family tradition that we have. Um, you may be familiar. It's a movie called Christmas Vacation. Chevy Chase? So this, this is how it works in my family. Thanksgiving meal, as soon as it's over, we watch Christmas Vacation. Christmas dinner, as soon as it's over, we watch Christmas Vacation. As many times in between, we watch Christmas Vacation. And we do this really awesome thing where, like, if you're in my family and you've seen it, like, millions of times, then, like, a split second before the actors will recite the lines, we'll say them because that's really funny and, like, really awesome. But apparently, if you're not, like, part of the family, that's the most annoying way to watch a movie. <laughs> I don't know. Every family has culture. And if we want people to feel welcome, give them a heads up. Let them know, like, hey, this is how we're going to watch Christmas Vacation, and you're probably going to hate it because it is really annoying. Let them know what dad's like. We let people know, like, hey, uh, we go through the back door instead of the front door. We take off our shoes. We don't take off our shoes. Don't worry about it. Help yourself. You better ask permission, right? Whatever our family culture is. And Jesus is doing this here. He calls God the Father 15 times in this sermon. So what the Father's like. The Father loves people who are different than him. The Father loves people who are actually in rebellion against him. The Father loves people so much that he sent his Son because he wants people to enter into relationships. And so as we're seeking the kingdom, God knows what we need. He's not like the TV character dad who's just kind of fumbling through life. He's a good father. He's a loving father. Jesus reminds us of this. As we're on mission, as we are living out this calling of being a display people to the nations of what the goodness and love of the father looks like, he knows God knows what we need. God today is feeding birds somewhere on the planet that no human will ever see. God today is growing grass somewhere where no human foot will ever step. He's got you. Your father is good. This way of thinking about God and about what we're called to changes the way we interact with each other. Because I, I realize, if I'm concerned about you guys, I'm putting my needs uh, or your needs before mine, then you're doing the same thing. That changes what I need to be worried about. The, the analogy or the image of being adopted into God's family starts to move from just me being adopted, but us being adopted. And I don't know about you guys, but family is important. We make sure our family doesn't go hungry. 
We make sure our family has clothes to wear. Now, they may not be dressed like Solomon, but they have clothes. Jesus is, is reorienting our gaze from ourselves to others. Not just so that we can, like, kumbaya, change the world. Not just so that we can be like those wacky, you know, whatever word you want to use, the, the hippies out there and live a communal life, but this is what his father is like. This is what Israel has been called to from the beginning. And we know that when Jesus returns and recreates the heavens and the new earth come down, there won't be hunger, there won't be sorrow. There'll be people from every tongue and tribe and nation and we'll be together and we'll be eating and, and we'll be like a family. Church, this is a beautiful image. This is not an image that's condemning people for anxiety disorder, for mental illness, for anything like that. This is an image of the Father's love overwhelming our hearts and spilling out into the ways we love and serve and commune with one another. This is what the church is called to. And historically, this is what the church has done. We talk about how when God's people have gotten it right, institutions like adoption and hospitals and libraries and universities bless the community. This isn't just a utopian high in the sky. This is the reality of how we love and serve one another. Some of you guys have experienced that from others in the congregation. Guys, there's hope here. There's hope in the Father because he's a good God, because he's a powerful God, because he's a loving God. Eugene Peterson talks about it this way uh, in this hope that we have in the Father. He says, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations. Hope is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. You guys have been following with us through this true story project. God's way has always been through broken people. People who worry. People who have anxiety disorders. People who understand that the Father's love is better than anything we can do on our own. This is the image that God is calling us to, this imagination put in the harness of faith when we work together to show the communities around us what God's love is like. Now, we may not be dressed like Solomon. We may not have all of the latest designer fashions. But if we had to ask the question of which pair of shoes will I wear this morning, there's evidence that God has blessed us. And from the beginning, we receive blessings so that we can bless other people. I think this is what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to remember God's provision in the past. In our own lives, 
but also in God's faithfulness to his people from the beginning of time. He's calling us to look hopefully forward to when he will restore and redeem all things. And with that confidence in the past and hope in the future, that changes us today. That reorders our priorities so that it's not just about me and my bread, but it's about us and our bread. The good news is that God loves us and he knows us very well. And even with these great images that Jesus gives us, uh, we still worry about our bread. We still fall short. And thankfully, Jesus died for us. So our salvation is not just dependent upon the good deeds we do for other people, but our salvation is dependent upon the great deed that he did for us. He became the bread of life so that we may have life. His body was broken so that we could receive wholeness. That's how we become adopted into this family. That's how we start to get to know what dad is like, so that we can live for others in the midst of our circumstances. There's hope here. There's a reason not to be preoccupied with clothing and, and what we'll eat here. Because our God is good. He's sacrificial and he's loving. And he's inviting us. He's welcoming us. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for loving us more than we fathom. Thank you for loving us while we worry, while we forget to trust you. Thank you for loving us while we're distracted and preoccupied. Thank you for loving us while we are just running in the opposite direction away from you. God, thank you for sending your son to show us what family culture is like. And not only that, but also to pay the way so that we could be entered into that family. God, thank you for that invitation. Thank you that you do adopt us as sons and daughters, and there's nothing we can do, no social justice project or mission trip that could help us to earn more of your love. You call us a son, you call us a daughter, and we can't gain anything more than that. Neither can we lose it. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm us with your love, with your goodness, that we would see your grace as we drive through Tempe, as we go to work in our neighborhoods, as we interact with people, that you would give us glimpses of how your kingdom can come on earth as it is in heaven and that you would tune our hearts towards that, that we would be seeking your kingdom. We would understand that our welfare is tied up in the welfare of others, that you bless us so that we could be a blessing for others. We thank you for that great privilege. We feel the weight of it and we pray that it would never become a duty, but that it would become um, a blessing, an opportunity to serve, not some, another checkbox. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more and help us to love your good world more. We pray all these things in your name.